Hello and welcome to the 2019 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 13, the Belgian Grand Prix. Charles Leclerc dominated qualifying to take his third F1 pole position by three quarters of a second. But Ferrari had none of that same pace advantage in the race, and Leclerc was forced to soak up pressure from a fast-finishing Lewis Hamilton to claim the first win of his career. To help unpack how Leclerc finally won in Formula One, I'm joined by BBC Five Live F1 commentator Jack Nichols. Jack, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Terrifically well. Yes, we've got Formula 1 back and I was so nervous going into this weekend because we had such terrific four races before the break. Surely Formula 1 couldn't keep it up, but well, happily it has. Yeah, it was entertaining, wasn't it? It wasn't um, you know, it wasn't an absolute thriller like sort of Hockenheim or something like that, but it was just a good solid race, <laughs> wasn't it? You know, it was just a good Formula 1 race. Who's going to win? Don't know. Nice fights. <laughs> Job done. Just a good square meal. Everyone went home. It yeah, was fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it all worked out. I do wonder at what point in the next 18 months um, we won't keep referring to, you know, it wasn't Hockenheim. Like, that's <laughs> going to be the bar for... <laughs> not sure how long. I mean, it was a very good race. Maybe it'll that'll always be the bar. Did you, did you like Hockenheim? Because it's weird. There are some people who love it and think that's one of the greatest races of all time. And some people who think, well, it was just wet and there was a stupid <laughs> runoff area that was all covered in soap. So, you know, is that actually great f1 i don't know i don't know which side i fall on to be honest yeah both very succinct summaries that uh, <laughs> of exactly what happened in that race i think uh I, I mean it was immensely entertaining i thought but in terms of it i, I think i preferred silverstone this year Agreed. because silverstone showed more sort of driver skill i guess whereas there's just a lot of mistakes in germany because it was wet yeah yeah i do i'd agree with that i'd agree with oh, it's good i'm glad we started on agreement anyway if anyone doesn't <laughs> agree uh actually i don't even have an email address for this show so you can't write in but Twitter, I guess. That's where all the abuse normally goes. Uh, we started the second half of this season, obviously with Belgium, and we've got Italy coming up this weekend imminently. And both uh, what we've predicted and has so far come true, Ferrari circuits. These are tracks that really favour the Ferrari car because Ferrari's all about engine speed this season, uh, making Enzo proud, I suppose. It's a shame about all the other tracks. But that certainly came to the fore, not only during practice, which they dominated, but Charles Leclerc in qualifying, three quarters of a second faster than anybody else. I mean, that really really set the tone for this weekend. That was quite astonishing, really. I think more than anything, it set the tone for Sebastian Vettel's weekend because mm. Ferrari had such a straight-line speed advantage. We saw it in the race when Hamilton was, you know, within DRS range of Vettel, but just didn't seem to close in at all. It was it was unbelievable. So that advantage at Spa is huge, and that's what they had. And uh, but so, so that wasn't too surprising to see them that far ahead in qualifying. We knew on Friday after the race runs that Mercedes were looking like they had a decent race pace. But Leclerc being seven tenths ahead of Vettel and Vettel, you know, being two hundredths mm. ahead of Hamilton in qualifying and then unable to beat him in the Grand Prix. It's sort of, you know, was it a superb job by Leclerc or was it a pretty poor weekend at the office for Vettel? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> well, what is your read on on this dichotomy across the, the whole season? We didn't get the, the championship element of this Ferrari fight this year, obviously. Uh, it's obviously by round 13. We know this very much. Uh, but we've had these weekends where I guess when Ferrari has looked kind of good, and certainly looked very good this weekend, Leclerc feels like he, he's been a couple of steps ahead. And, you know, Bahrain comes to mind, obviously, being the last race he probably could have won. And Probably Azerbaijan had Leclerc not crashed, of course, and that, that sort of seems like a self-defeating argument. But it feels like when Ferrari does hit its stride, only one of those two drivers is taking it with him. Yeah, you're right. I mean, 
there's been so many Grand Prix this season where Ferrari have been on the pace that it's amazing that they're not, <laughs> you know, involved in the in the title fight in any way, and that Verstappen is still ahead of them. I mean, like you say, you think of Bahrain where Leclerc should have won, Azerbaijan where he was quick. Canada, Vettel was on pole. Mm-hmm. Um, Austria, Leclerc was on pole. Hockenheim, Ferrari were looking quickest, but didn't get it done in <laughs> qualifying. Well, um, they didn't even get to qualify <laughs> because the cars broke down. So that's a good old chunk of races where Ferrari have been there or thereabouts in the mix, but they just have nothing to, nothing to show for it. And you're right, I think Vettel was helped. Leclerc got... Not messed around a bit at the start of the season, but things would, you know, you think of China with the sort of team orders stuff mm. where Leclerc wasn't, I don't think he was treated badly, particularly. I think those the team orders sort of made mostly sense when they were happening. But you're right, Leclerc's really hit a, hit a sort of run of form to the point where he's now uh, 12 points back from Sebastian Vettel, where it was uh, a lot more. So, and Leclerc's had two retirements and Vettel hasn't had... Uh, and he didn't score any points in Silverstone. But look, Leclerc's a really exciting talent. We all sort of thought that watching him in GP3 and then Formula 2 and then looked pretty exciting in Sauber last year. But he's only beating Marcus Ericsson. How impressive is that? Now we're, we're really seeing what he can do. And him and Verstappen are the, are the future of Formula 1, really, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, what an exciting future that creates. Not to mention, of course, we've got some young guys coming up as well. And yeah. to think they're already there at such a young age, already fighting for, well, maybe not quite the championship yet, but maybe that's no fault of their own, really, it does make you think that we've got a lot in store for the next couple of years. If only anyone could actually catch Mercedes. One day we'll get an answer to that question, I guess. Well, Verstappen's, t- Verstappen's 21 and by the end of the year, he'll have 100 race starts. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've I'd had nothing close to that level of achievement when I turned 21. So I don't know. I mean, it's, you hate, almost hate watching it because it just reminds you. that what, what did you do at 21? I don't even know. I'm not even, yeah, I would have had my driver's license. That's pretty good. Oh, no, well done. That. Yeah, oh, thank you. If no one's actually ever congratulated me on before, but it's, it's nice to know. Uh, it's interesting, considering Ferrari's one lap pace, how dramatic the long run pace on Friday practice really turned against them essentially. And I guess this speaks to the idea that they really are all injured and and not much else. The car doesn't in general terms really work that well, sliding around a lot on a circuit that of course is low downforce, but relative to the Mercedes, that car is just producing so much less downforce that it's, it's to its detriment. He made some changes after qualifying that kind of helped a little bit, but kind of like you alluded to earlier, while Vettel was able to really easily pass Hamilton on that first lap when he fell behind him at the first corner, wasn't really able to sprint away, and Mercedes sniffed that something could be on despite the fact they had such a lack of straight-line speed. I mean, it's a positive result for Ferrari overall, but really in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't really point to necessarily a revival or anything like that, does it? No, well, I think they've been... The the sort of story is that they've been struggling, you know, with this car, because with, with the essentially the effectiveness of the aerodynamics. So they're, they're getting more drag than they actually get downforce when it comes to the corners. So I think that's the... Because the logical thing here, if they've got that much of a speed advantage down the straights and they're struggling that much in the middle of the lap, we'll just stick on more downforce so you're sort of a similar speed to Mercedes on the straights and then you've got more grip in the corners. But their downforce isn't as um, efficient or effective as the Mercedes car. So that's why you end up in this weird situation where they're, they're flying down the straight. And part of that is probably the engine as well, of course, but it's not like they can just crank on a load of downforce so that they're the same as Mercedes because it's just not working like that for them. And 
there was a report in Automunden Sports, a German magazine yesterday, based on sort of some things that Ferrari was saying and Vettel has been saying, is that basically Leclerc can deal with that lack of grip in the middle sector better than Sebastian Vettel can, therefore can keep his tyres sort of in better condition and, as we saw yesterday, go much longer into the Grand Prix than Sebastian Vettel could. And that's what really, I suppose, ultimately won him the race. But that doesn't explain the, the one lap pace as well that he had on Saturday qualifying. Absolutely. One of the, I suppose, the ameliorating factors in the race for Ferrari, though, was that it was much cooler. Now, you were in Spa-Francorchamps. We'd like to make a big deal about the weather whenever we come here. <laughs> Didn't rain during the race. Did rain beforehand, so everyone got a chance to get excited. But, I mean, people talked so much about how much cooler it was on Sunday. Was it that much cooler on Sunday? I t- I t- it was chilly-ish in the morning, to be fair, and there was a bit of drizzle. By the time the race came around, I can't really remember the, the track temperature stats it was a bit cooler. I, I don't think it, you know, it, we're not talking, it wasn't crazy hot on Friday and Saturday. It mm. was just a nice 20, 25 degrees. You know, it was it was warm, but it's not like when, uh, what was it, Austria, where it, it got so hot that, you know, Mercedes cars were blowing up and all that sort of thing. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a really, really dramatic difference. Um, and also, we were trying to think, when was the last wet? Belgian Grand Prix. Good question. Every year we turn up and talk about wet Belgian Grand Prix, wet Belgian Grand Prix. And then when did it even happen? We think there was a bit of drizzle in 2010. Oh, there was a bit of drizzle back. at the end of 2008 when Hamilton and Raikkonen and, you know, Hamilton got then disqualified for overtaking Raikkonen and all of that. But that, like, I don't remember any more recently than, than nine or ten years ago. But all we do is go spa, all the rain. There's a rain. <laughs> it's just the mental connection of a spa and the spa. And I guess we expect water. Did you know did you know that a spa is named after the spa? Really? I found this out this weekend. Like spa was basically there's a casino there and stuff, because you wonder why there's this town in Belgium and there's hot springs there at spa, and you know, the Romans would go there and stuff, and every other spa is named after that spa because ah. people would be like, oh, you know, we're going for a relaxing weekend at the hot springs at the spa, at spa, and then that's where... So it's, it is that way around, the etymology of the of the word. There you go. More than just strategy. Yeah, yeah. yeah i got to change the <laughs> slogan. I'm going to give us a slogan, first of all, and then change it to more than strategy. If it wasn't that much cooler, it still helped, I suppose, slightly, because Ferrari was was going for anything really at this point, because they knew their weakness was keeping those tyres alive relative to Mercedes, because Mercedes seemed to be doing such a good job. Yeah, they really struggled with that on the Friday as well. So I think I think they were better. Certainly Leclerc was better with that come the race on Sunday, because Friday they, they looked like they were really struggling on the soft. And so we leapt into this race on Sunday, not knowing how it was going to end and not knowing how we were going to get to whatever ending we were going to get. There could have been a two-stop strategy deployed if tyre wear was great enough. Only a couple of drivers did it, and well, one of them, Sebastian Vettel, as we'll get to, was kind of forced into it in a way by accident, I suppose. Uh, it ended up being a fairly straightforward one-stop strategy, but how... It was achieved is what was particularly interesting. Sebastian Vettel, we've talked about how he sort of lacked the pace of Charles Leclerc. And in that first stint, he wasn't really anywhere near him. While he was keeping ahead of the Mercedes drivers, he wasn't able to build that cap Leclerc was doing. And suddenly there was this moment where 
We thought that maybe Mercedes was going to try to undercut him. In the end, Ferrari preempted it and it didn't even happen. And that sort of was the first decisive moment of this race because it put Vettel on a completely different strategy or, or a fairly different strategy, I should say, to the rest of the front runners. Yeah, well, Vettel didn't have the pace, as you say, and it's it's quite it's relatively easy to overtake at Spa in the grand scheme of, you know, F1 race circuits. Um, and Hamilton was close. He was within DRS range. And although he got the DRS and couldn't make the overtake, it was clear that he was within a second. So the undercut was a was a very, very large possibility. So Mercedes was sort of getting ready and Ferrari thought, well, we have to we have to cover this off because if we don't, Hamilton's through. So I think that's what would have happened is that Mercedes were getting ready to bring Hamilton in to try the undercut and it would have been the classic do the opposite of what the car in front of you does. If Vettel doesn't come in, we pit and undercut him. If Vettel does stay in, then we stay out and and Ferrari reacted really I think in the only way they they could have done I suppose with the you know with the threat of Mercedes there they had to try and cover Hamilton off and keep track position so they pitted Vettel which was the which was the right thing to do this almost is a theme for this race and it's just sort of struck me now that if we cover off all of the the Ferrari related talking points I can't actually think of a mistake they made this weekend no. I don't think there is one. Is this the first time we can say that this year? Uh, maybe, maybe across the whole of the team and the two drivers <laughs> and you know the strategy and the reliability, mm. they had a pretty solid weekend. To be honest, it was only kind of Vettel that let them down, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I, I thought their strategy calls were fairly spot on. They were pretty decisive with the whole letting Leclerc back through past Vettel. No problems there. It was it was a good job. It was a good job. Yeah, I can't say that very often on no. this podcast. Impressive, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a momentous episode, actually. The first couple of laps of Vettel's second stint kind of proved key to how the battle for the lead unfolded because he was keen to get back into that pit stop window of his teammate Charles Leclerc pushed very hard early on the medium tyre. That would come back to bite him a little bit later on. It confined him onto that two-stop strategy. But then we had this tension because Mercedes very clearly set all of their eyes back onto Leclerc. They ignored the bait that Vettel potentially set there by attempting to undercut and continue to focus on the lead. But Leclerc was the one who stopped first rather than Hamilton, who was chasing. I suppose Hamilton was a little bit out of undercut range, but as we saw from not only Vettel's improved pace on those mediums, but even some of the midfield cars, new tyres were very effective at the start of the second stint. Are you surprised that Mercedes didn't pull that trigger first? Um, I don't think... Mercedes are hugely making a big difference if they stop before Ferrari. If anything, they're just sort of giving Ferrari all the options. You know, if they pit Hamilton, then Leclerc can either go long or Leclerc. So I think it's I think it was the sort of right-ish decision to let them make the move. And also, it turned out in the end of the Grand Prix, Hamilton. Okay, he had there were only like one lap fresher tyres, but that seemed to make quite a big difference come the end. It's true, and in the end, I mean, we we record this with the benefit of hindsight, yeah. so it's very easy for us to. Uh... To say exactly when he should have pit, even though it's still, of course, not clear exactly when he should have pit. But to go through some of the times, which I think are interesting in the context of him finishing less than a second behind Leclerc, and we get to imagine some real good what-ifs, I suppose. It's pretty much what the whole show is about, is uh, the pit stop comparison, for one. Leclerc uh, had a pit stop that was 1.2 seconds faster, or rather, we should say, Mercedes was yeah. that much slower, because it was a sort of a little bit of an unusually slow stop for Mercedes. Of course, it's not so simple to say, oh, well, 1.2 seconds, he'd have finished three tenths ahead at the flag, or whatever it would be, but that is a big chunk of time, considering where they ended up. 
Yeah, true, but then you can throw it that Hamilton, when he got really close to the back of Vettel that, that one time, locked up at the bus stop, so that took him an extra lap mm. to get past Vettel. So, yeah, you can find those little bits of time that would have got him the win everywhere. It, was, it, was, it wasn't costly for Mercedes, that, that, that pit lane problem. It certainly had an effect. You can't put the whole sort of race win down to it, I don't think, but it's, it's certainly a surprise when you think, because Ferrari's pit stops were were pretty pretty swift to be honest i think it was like 2.4 seconds or something for for leclerc so yeah it cost them a bit of time wasn't an absolute shocker but not ideal small imperfections but definitely not a uh, anything that on its own would would of yeah. course cost the race because really what the i think what we can call the decisive moment of the race with the four laps at which point hamilton caught up to the back of sebastian vettel after vettel had waved leclerc past uh, as per team orders given they were on different strategies the most efficient team order we've seen from ferrari for well a long time really yeah maybe since felipe Massa and fernando alonso used to say <laughs> vettel did a good job of being dare we say it the number two driver and, and holding hamilton up yeah Vettel's come out and and sort of said, yeah, I tried to do that for Charles to give Charles a bit. Surely he's doing it for his own race. I don't think he's doing that for, you know, for the team and for the for the greater good. I mean, he's doing that to try and stay ahead of Lewis Hamilton and try and keep him at bay. And if he hadn't made a mistake and uh, I think it was into Stavolo, the first Stavolo, he went in too deep. That meant Hamilton was super close and got the slipstream all the way to the bus stop. And therefore he was close enough coming out of La Source, that the DRS plus being like right under his rear wing was enough to give him the slipstream. Because before then, if Hamilton's seven or eight tenths away, that's no worries for Vettel. He had it. I think it was Vettel's tiny mistake at Stavolo 1 that meant half a lap later, Hamilton was able to get through. I don't think Vettel was, you know, playing the wingman role there. I think that's a convenient, you know, reason or, you know, explanation. But I think he was just trying to keep second place, quite frankly. And yeah, okay, that, you know, that that helped and gave Leclerc a bit of breathing space. But I don't think Vettel was particularly, you know, sacrificed for it. I guess when when you're in this battle in the front runners, given that one Red Bull racing car was essentially stuck in the midfield, did rise to fifth by the end of the race, but was battling in the midfield and Max Verstappen didn't even make it a lap. Realistically, you're only gambling with a, a minimum finish of fourth place, which is what he got in the end, even when he switched to a, a set of soft tyres towards the end of the race when his mediums really had gone. I guess you can afford to gamble when you're only going to really lose one to two places. Well, this was the thing. It's similar to um, Hamilton in Budapest, isn't it? Where no one else is anywhere near you. You can't get past Verstappen on track, so you just might as well pit. And that's the you know, that's the odd thing we've seen with um the fastest lap point, for example, is that it's whichever is the whoever's in last place in the of the front runners of Red Bull, uh, Mercedes or Ferrari will get the fastest lap because they'll be far enough ahead to have a free pit stop. They have a free pit stop. They get the fastest lap. So that is uh, fortunate that no one else was anywhere near them to to be able to sort of give that strategy a, a go. Because if if you had the other Red Bulls there, if you had the Red Bulls there, actually, now I think about it, you're right. Like. That would have been really, really costly for Vettel. But in the end, it doesn't look too bad. He finishes fourth, his teammates first, he's behind the two Mercedes, fine. But if the Red Bulls are in there and they're looking after their tyres okay and have some reasonable race pace, which they appeared to do on Friday, then suddenly Vettel's finishing sixth or something in a, in a, in a world of pain. So I think he's kind of got away with yesterday a little bit. Yeah, with having a, a another, well, a bit of an average race. Sometimes I feel bad. I keep saying another and emphasizing it. But okay, yeah. it kind of was another. Uh, it led to this this great 
final chase, uh, almost second race in a row, I suppose, considering this was how Hamilton pinched the win in, in Budapest. Didn't quite manage it here. I suppose in the end, it, it did come back down to that Ferrari straight line speed, meaning it, it was so hard to get an opportunity into any braking zone after a long stretch of a straight. But I mean, it must be said, and Leclerc sort of said it after the race as well, referenced that all of the near wins he had all came under this great moment of pressure towards the end of the race, whether it be a technical problem in Bahrain or in Austria where he looked like he was going to win until Verstappen charged him down towards the end, that he's gotten quite good at absorbing this kind of pressure. Yeah, well, he wasn't in Austria, but fine. Um, yeah, well, well, I guess it depends, yeah, it depends on the perspective. Yeah, uh, no, it was... It was it's a weird thing where everyone wants Leclerc to win. Like, I think everyone apart from Mercedes wants Leclerc to win. And I think now he's won a race. I think that'll be different. But you want to see the exciting new guy get the win. And he was robbed of it in um, Bahrain. Ferrari didn't do him a huge amount of favours in Austria. They were starting on a different tyre to everyone else was a result. That's why Verstappen sort of had the sort of tyre advantage coming into the into the closing stages. They pitted him really early as well, perhaps earlier than they needed to be. So they sort of left him on a bit of a limb there. And then all of a sudden, here he is, final laps. And Hamilton, out of nowhere, is suddenly just whacking a second out of him each time. You're like, this can't happen again, can it? But, you know, he, he managed to hold on, which is great for him. Great for Formula One, really. And, um, yeah, just, you know, especially after the events of the of the day before for... Leclerc with a you know a guy he knows being killed after you know Jules Bianchi his godfather's been killed and after his dad has died the you know the day the week before he races in um, Baku GP2 a couple of years ago I mean the kid's been through so Mm. much it's unbelievable it really does put into I suppose a new perspective the the way people describe Leclerc being incredibly mature for his age, and I think almost in general, really, um, for someone who is who has experienced so much, and to 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 have a profession that is such a a high pressure one, uh, really does reset that perspective on him. You really have to appreciate how solid that head is on his shoulders. Absolutely, I mean he's he's younger than Hubert. You know, Antoine Hubert, who died on Saturday, was twenty two. Leclerc's twenty one. Like. Pff. That's that's just mad, and then he goes and wins the Grand Prix on on Sunday. I think it's just astonishing maturity from a from a twenty one year old to be to go through all he's been through, and I think that's part of the reason people are so supportive of him as well is because of that and because of how he handles himself and because he's still humble and friendly and nice. I think he's uh, I, I think he's I think he's astonishing. He is, and first new winner since uh, Valtteri Bottas, which just sounds weird to me for some reason. So I wanted to. <laughs> to put that in there, but uh, that's, that's the way it is. Anyway, uh, Bottas, by the way, finished third in a fairly anonymous, but I suppose solid race. So congratulations on the new contract. Sebastian Vettel finished fourth. Let's look a little bit in the midfield, though. Uh, at fifth place, I'd have thought right up until the very end of the race, we'd be talking about Lando Norris, who ran a very standard, very solid Grand Prix, uh, got up to that position uh, with a great first lap, working his way around the, the chaos and holding it off from there. Had some assistance, though, from the, frankly, terrible Haas cars. <laughs> I don't want to say the drivers, just the cars, because, well, for a while they bottled up the midfield before they inevitably sunk down into the depths uh, of the very back of the grid. Uh, I, I mean, there are two aspects to this, I suppose. A, Norris did a terrific job uh, again, but B... The, the the Haas cars are so bad, they're having massive influences on the race at this point. The, so, Norris did a good job, 
Norris did a great job. And, you know, he's on for his first, uh, his best results in Formula One and the car breaks down the last lap. That's that's gut-wrenching. And he was a good 17 seconds ahead of um, Perez, which, you know, as you said, mostly come from being held up behind Haas. But he had he had the pace to be there. Haas, the, Haas might... I feel like Haas are the weirdest team in Formula One history. <laughs> like, because they they qualified... Were both cars in the top ten? I can't yeah. quite remember, but they were they were right up there. And but it's just weird on so many levels. They have no race pace, no no straight line speed. Seemingly when they're basically, you know, it's a Ferrari engine, mm-hmm. and a you know the controversy of whether it's a knockoff Ferrari car or not. <laughs> Even if it's got some sort of the same DNA, you'd think that straight line speed they'd be all right in. <laughs> And then, so, I mean, maybe that explains why they struggled so much with their tyres. If it's sort of a Ferrari-style car and Ferrari struggled, then maybe that makes a bit more sense. But then they left um, Magnussen out on the... Magnussen was losing places left, right and centre on the soft tyres. We were told by McLaren that from lap 10 onwards, if you're on the softs, the pit stop window is open. You know, that's kind of, you know, from there to go on to either a two-stopper or onto the mediums, you know... From lap 10 onwards. Apart from the top three of Hamilton, Bottas and Leclerc, Magnussen was the last runner to stop on the softs. We were, After nine laps, you were like, this guy needs to get the soft tyres off. And they just kept him out there until he was like 16th or something, not made a pit stop. What what, what were they trying to achieve? <laughs> it was the weirdest. It was it was genuinely. We, we were saying in commentary, uh, Jolie and Palmer and I, like what then we must be missing something like we must be missing something because on it looks like just the weirdest strategy <laughs> i've ever seen in my life because when ferrari mess things up most of the time you can kind of see what they were going for yeah you can kind of go right okay i see why you thought that it was wrong <laughs> it didn't work at all yeah. in hindsight it was probably a bit stupid but you know <laughs> i i get the thinking i get why we were trying to achieve what were Haas trying to achieve with that just to like ruin Magnussen's day? I, I, it was absolutely... And this was Magnussen who in... Was it Hungary the last race when he came on the radio going, guys, this is the worst race of my whole life or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Like, and they just left him out forever. It was absolutely baffling. Baffling team, Hass. It really is. And the, the, that weird difference between Saturday qualifying, Sunday race. I can't think of another situation in which any team has been so dramatically different it's almost like the car it's a different car on yeah. different days yeah. i mean we spent the first half of the podcast saying hey oh you know ferrari was very quick on saturday but on sunday they were a little bit less quick that's just completely underdoes the difference that haas has been experiencing i do wonder it's almost like you know ferrari is sometimes quite guilty of of forgetting they have two drivers in certain races. Sometimes they'll they'll be f- so focused on the strategy of one car that they'll forget the other one. I wonder if Haas was so excited that for maybe 10 laps, Grosjean looked like he might with score points, <laughs> that they forgot that Magnussen, or they, they willingly forgot Magnussen because it was too depressing to think about it, that that's how he ended up there because it did make no sense. In, in Melbourne, right, it's the first race of the season, Jolie and Palmer used to be teammates with Kevin Magnussen, and they're having a chat, having a chat. And I go, oh, what do you have a chat about? He's like, K-Mag is buzzing. K-Mag is absolutely buzzing. He he reckons they've got a car that is, you know, best of the rest, maybe challenging Red Bull if they sort of really hook it up. And then first race of the season, uh, Grosjean has another pit problem, but Magnussen finishes sixth. So you're like, okay, yeah, that, wow, maybe Haas have got a good car. 
It got a 7th and 8th uh, in Germany, but that was a bit sort of rain affected. 7th and 10th in Spain, fine, double points finish. They're only Williams are behind them in the championship. They are the worst, slowest, baddest in races <laughs> team on the grid, demonstrably by points. But sometimes they've got the the fourth quickest car. It's honestly so weird. It's going to make incredible Netflix content. That's yeah. all I know. Because if you thought last year was good, uh, this year is going to be much more interesting. I'll have to do loads of rubbish fake commentary for them as well. <laughs> you know, I've been, at first when I was starting watching that series, I was trying to pick which ones, <laughs> if they were real or not, all the commentary. And then by the end, I was like, I don't think anyone went into the US Grand Prix talking about how much Renault really wanted to finish fifth in the constructor standings. <laughs> but it was good. I thought it was good anyway. It's, still, it's, yeah. it's well worth a watch and listen. Oh, it's okay. It's, it's amazing. I remember because obviously when I was doing the sort of voiceovers for it, I was watching it because I was obviously having to voiceover. And it's like, wow, this is some, this is stuff we've not seen about everyone mm. before. It's awesome. It is. It's true. It's good. I look forward to the new season. Haas aside though, because really, while from one angle they deserve to be talked about, on another they do not. And I feel like we've <laughs> talked about them plenty for what they achieved. Because Norris failed to finish despite running a very solid race, it meant Alex Albon eventually got to fifth past Perez in the in the final lap or so off the grass in a move that I think actually didn't make it onto television, weirdly. A, a positive result for him, and you can kind of contrast it a little bit or liken it a little bit to Daniel Kvyat's race in this as well, because both started right near the back of the grid with a whole bunch of power unit penalties as we've grown used to in this race. That is something that happens at Spa. Not rain, yeah. but power unit penalties. Uh, and really climbed back up, partly because everyone stopped so early to try and undercut Haas, so that was advantageous for them towards the end, but finished on that soft tyre, which was so good. Um, we'll start with Elbon, though, in this situation, because a, a really aggressive drive, I thought... Not just in general, but because this is the first race he's ever experienced in this car, it's a fairly big statement. You can't really judge Albon too much over the course of uh, over this weekend because you know they've been doing. He's been doing different running to Verstappen. There was talk that he'd be running a lower downforce setup to Verstappen's higher downforce because he's starting at the back. That would help him carve through the order. So, but it would ultimately be sort of slower in in, in one lap pace. But every time you sort of could compare them, he seemed to be. There or thereabouts. Christian Horner said he was within a few tenths after their run in, uh, I think it was free practice two. Seemed to do a decent job, you know, decent enough, fine job in qualifying. And then in the race, he came through to to finish pretty well in fifth. Okay, Raikkonen, who had qualified best of the rest, was out. Verstappen was out. Norris broke down, so he would have been sort of behind Norris as well. But I think you, you couldn't have asked for any more from Albon this weekend. Put it that way. You could, you know... you. He did, you're not left thinking, mm, you know, there was more in there. He kind of seemed to get the maximum out of it. And I, and I thought he was fairly impressive. And I really liked his overtake around the outside of Daniel Ricciardo at turn nine. He really set him up there. And OK, Ricciardo, they'd left him out for, for quite a while on the sort of gamble he could get into some points in the Renault uh, after having to pit early on with the after a collision with uh, Stroll, I think it was. But I think Albon, yeah, he, you know, he did, he did fine. He did a decent job. He looked, he looked decent. I, you know that, and I think that's as much as we can sort of take out of it. To briefly touch on Daniel Kvyat before we do talk about Daniel Ricciardo, because that is um, the the one counterpoint of strategy I think in this race we're talking about. Is that he ran a similar strategy, quite a lot delivered for Toro Rosso in this race, given they started the week and not really feeling like this was going to be a track that was going to suit them. Uh, I guess overall we could say as well that this was a a good test for Honda, and I think they more or less passed it. Yeah, I would say so. We didn't really see 
the well the Red Bulls were there or thereabout. In fact, um, I think that uh, Verstappen was tended to be a bit quicker in sector one than the than the Mercedes as well. To be honest with you, so I, I think Honda. I agree. I think they passed the test. We'll see a bit more in Monza next week. Uh, Kvyat, yeah, did did a good job. Him and Gasly to both score points, having been so far down, was a on the grid was a was a good effort. I think they made a lot of ground in the opening laps, and like you say, that because they weren't directly involved in that seventh place or whatever it was queue behind the behind the Haas guys, they could they could extend and go longer and then come in later and have fresher tyres towards the end. So no, I, I think Kvyat did a good job and Honda did a good job, and I think now Honda are very much a, a, a reputable engine manufacturer in Formula One now. It's no longer, you know, Mercedes are the best, then Ferrari are good, Renault are a bit rubbish, <laughs> and Honda are awful. They're all kind of, you know, pretty much meeting up there now. Yeah, which is exactly what you want after so many years. But, okay, the Renault engine is, is possibly coming along, but this is a big couple of test races for Renault as well. In fact, I think Nico Hulkenberg said it. Okay, you can say maybe he's saying that because he doesn't think they'll pass and then he's going to leave the team at the end of the year and he might feel good about <laughs> it. But it's true. This is a big test considering they've fallen so behind, so far behind McLaren. McLaren didn't score this weekend, so it was a good opportunity for Renault. Like he picked up a couple of points with Nico Hulkenberg. Yes, Daniel Ricciardo was involved in that first lap crash that required him to stop on lap one. But you cannot help but feel that this was another race in which Renault did throw away points with a weird suspect strategy because by half distance, he was right behind Antonio Giovinazzi. And Giovinazzi hadn't stopped at that point. He did stop. He was in the points until he crashed, of course. And you can't help but feel that had Renault only then run conventionally, there could have been points on the table. But instead, they felt a weird need to gamble. Uh, Is this more of an extension of this weirdness that seems to be surrounding Renault that they can't quite pull it together in the way that they should be able to um yeah I mean I uh, again this is this is a bit like the sort of strategy decision I was talking about earlier like this isn't a has what are you doing this is more of a I get you you know you've made your you've made your one pit stop or you've made a pit stop with Ricardo you know very early on can he get uh, yeah, I agree with hindsight. It was the it was the wrong thing to do. He wasn't too far away from getting points, Ricardo. He lost all those places in the in the closing laps. You know, it wasn't like he was a million miles away. And I guess they were just sort of conscious that he'd already made sort of his pit stop. So you don't want to make another pit stop if if you don't have to. I, I suppose was the kind of theory. But you're right. He was with Giovinazzi, and Giovinazzi would have scored points if he hadn't retired from the Grand Prix. So yeah, it's an odd one. Hulkenberg had a fairly sort of anonymous race didn't he I, I can't even really think what happened to Hulkenberg but um maybe he's not like he got out qualified by Jolian Palmer here one year so you know maybe he's not that uh, maybe he's just not strong at Spa he, he didn't actually get out qualified actually he didn't actually get out qualified Palmer was quicker than him in uh, Q2 and then the car blew up in Q3 so uh-huh. Palmer calls that out qualifying yep. him which is you know, factually not true. Did you have that one ready to go in this? That's such a particular statistic. No, I only just thought of it now. I it's only so just long ago. Now, no. But, you know, look, you can't take it away from him, can you? Uh, an interesting Belgian Grand Prix. A good way to start the second half of the year. And now we'll see if Ferrari can win two races in a row. Incredible. I can't believe it at the <laughs> Italian Grand Prix next week. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again, Jack. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
That was BBC Five Live F1 commentator Jack Nichols. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're looking for an alternative take on the Belgian Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear Rob James and I consider how Ferrari managed not to throw this race win away. My name's Michael Laminato. Look me up at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you next week for a wrap-up of the Italian Grand Prix.